Internets is Reggie Osei, a.k.a. Combat Jack, of the legendary Combat Jack Show, one of the longest-running hip-hop podcasts out there today, one of the best and one of the most informative, one of the most entertaining, all of that. Listen to The Combat Jack Show podcast on Apple Podcasts and any other streaming services out there today. Raise the bar. We're taking our show on the road in front of a live audience where you need to be. On September 7th, we're sitting down with actress and activist Rosie Perez and her husband, artist and designer Eric Hayes, at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Hayes, by the way, did the logo for our podcast. On September 22nd, we'll be in Washington, D.C., speaking to Chef Jose Andres. You can buy tickets at nprpresents.org. Come out and hang. Today's podcast may contain some explicit language. You're warned. I got an audition or offer, can't remember which one, to play Sam Jackson's wife. And I was like, guys, come on. Sam Jackson's wife? Uh, what What did I, did I lose a bet? What's happening? <laughs> Woo! Uh, uh, uh. That was actor and director Regina King, our guest today on What's Good with Stretch and Bobito. In a minute, we'll talk to her about what it means to break out of wife world and about her reasons for making the move from movies to television. But first, Stretch, let's talk about some of the films that King has starred in. Yes, indeed. It's interesting. There was kind of like a void of films about African-Americans for some time, at least where the narrative was controlled from within the community. And then the 90s, uh, John Singleton, Spike Lee, I mean, there were a number of filmmakers who were coming out with uh, Boys in the Hood and Fridays and the, uh, and the Get on the Bus. Do you remember how your, your, your initial reaction when this sort of like slew of movies came out that were speaking to the community that we served as radio personalities? Yeah, I've got two impressions. You know, when we started doing radio in the 90s, right, hip-hop was still... I wouldn't say it was a, a, a fringe culture, but it was not embraced by the mainstream. Um, of course, it has since become mainstream, and we've got you know a lot of mixed feelings about that because of what it's done to the art. But it's a fact that you know, as late as 90, 91, 92, hip-hop insiders were really frustrated with the lack of acceptance by the gatekeepers in media and in the entertainment industry. So when these films came out, it was like, finally, finally, the stories about the communities from which this music that we love are finally making it to the big screen. It felt like a breakthrough. And, Mm. you know, hip-hop people were patriotic, right? So you wanted to see, you know, hip-hop do well. And that that was a huge step. Same time, you know, we were New Yorkers, right? And... You know, it seemed like a lot of these stories were being told from an L.A. perspective. Sure. And while some of the themes that they explored were universal, the urban experience, you know, th- throughout the United States, I think we were hoping that something that would tell a New York story would, would come to the screen. I mean, it eventually did. The, the, the film course. Fresh was spot on. Um, it may not be as, as popular as the others, like Friday. I worked on the soundtrack to that. Hey. You did? Yeah. Oh, that's right. I knew that. I knew that. Yeah, that was a great film. Thank you. We try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, Regina King. <laughs> 
We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. At Stoke, they recognize that not every bean measures up. Stoke is steeped at cool temperatures for at least 10 hours to achieve a smooth taste. It's slow brewed like all the best ideas. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Look at you go. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dancehall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you're looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com. Joining us now is the incredible Regina King. Increíble! <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today started acting as a teen on the 1980s comedy sitcom 227, a show following a middle-class black family in Washington, D.C., when it was still Chocolate City. Since then, she's had a prolific career, cementing herself as one of the most important actresses in the canon of black American cinema. She starred in cult classics, like Boys in the Hood and Friday and blockbuster hits like Jerry Maguire and Ray. She also has a long and equally impressive career in television. She voiced Riley and Huey Freeman on The Boondocks and has won two Emmys for her roles in American Crime. Regina King, welcome! <laughs> Regina King, welcome! Bienvenidos! Only if Barbito follows it up with Increíble! <laughs> Regina, you've been a part of some of the most iconic films in the hip-hop generation, Poetic Justice, Friday, Boys in the Hood. I know this is not new to you. I'm sure people come up to you all the time, or at least, you know, some older cats from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk Boys in the Hood, a pivotal movie not only for you, but for the world, a coming-of-age story set in the neighborhood in L.A. with gang violence, the first film that John Singleton directs, and it's been considered part of the black film renaissance in Hollywood. How did your experiences growing up in L.A. prepare you for that role? Um, I mean, I think in a huge way because, obviously, it's L.A., and um, I feel like I had such a connection with so many of those people that there were so many life parallels with so many of the actors and the director producer uh John Singleton that that was just a synergy that could never be duplicated you know you just had all of those people at a we were all in our 20s we all grew up in LA and it, it was just you know that's a special moment where people were bringing their life experiences together to tell the story. So were you, like, at what point were you acting and what point were you not? Ha <laughs> <laughs> You got jokes. <laughs> um, I would like to say that I was always acting. Um, no, it's, here's the thing. Um... I wouldn't say that I was as hood savvy as Shalika was in Boys in the Hood, mm. but I definitely was hood adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> so in interviews, you've talked about having to fight against typecasting after that film. Post Boys in the Hood, what roles do you feel allowed you to grow as an actress and explore characters with more depth? I would have to say after Boys in the Hood, Jerry Maguire 
would probably have been, I mean, you know, I I'd still had done Poetic Justice and I think uh, Friday. So I would say that that although I had done those other films in between Boys in the Hood and um, Jerry Maguire, I think that Jerry Maguire was the first film where people were looking at me as an adult. Well, then in 2004, you star in Ray. And in an interview, you said that role was crucial for you because it took you out of, quote, Wife world. Can you tell us what wife world is? Wifey world or wife world? Either or. Wifey world. (laughs) Wife world. What I meant by that was after I had done Jerry Maguire, I guess um, I had done a very believable job. It seemed as though everyone just always wanted me to play their wife or the wife. And, um, you know, Enemy of the State, don't get me wrong, that was an amazing movie and an amazing experience. That's the joint with Will Smith? The joint with Will Smith. Will Smith, John. I would love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) That was the last film, Bob, so other than than the ones he's directed. (laughs) Hey, you know, explain to me. I I think I just heard you say John. What is that? That's Philly. That's That's Philly. Philly. Like the joint. Like, yo, that's the joint. Anything that's a noun can be replaced with John. Oh, I've I've heard people say that before, but... um, you know, I just smiled and act like I knew what they were talking about. But yeah, that um, Will Smith John. <laughs> that was perfect usage. Um, I just got kind of typecast, I guess. And then I got an audition or offer, can't remember which one, to play Sam Jackson's wife. And I was like, guys, come on. Sam Jackson's wife? Really? <laughs> Uh, what what did I, did I lose a bet? What's happening? <laughs> you know, Sam does, does Jackson Sam is. Notice? Does he notice? Uh, I might have told him this story at some point. <laughs> Sam, first of all, Sam is amazing, and you know, Sam course, is the first first person to uh, tell tell it like a ti is. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? um, so Ray came along at a time where I found myself like turning down a couple wife moments. And feeling like, okay, maybe this may not be a good idea. Maybe I should rethink this wifey thing and and play some wives again. And then Ray came along. Mm. How about any other types of roles that you just said, nah, can't do that? Um, I well, I don't. There, mm. <laughs> you see me trying to be all. Yeah, diplomatic yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything here. I know you got like you got like five roles in your mind, but you act yeah. like you don't remember. Yeah, that you know, I'm, you know, I'm, look, stretch. I'm gonna leave that right there. I'm gonna leave that question right there. And uh, I'm okay, go about, to something else that kind of answers. that. How about the categories of roles? What were they? Uh, they were things that I did not feel as a, a mother that mm-hmm. I wanted to gotcha. portray mm-hmm. or, or be seen in that light. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably if those opportunities had come before I was a mother, probably or might not, not probably, I would not have felt the same. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once you become a parent, you just, you look at things through your children's eyes and you make certain choices, you know, for example, I, from the time my son was in like 
fourth, fifth grade on to his senior year, I um, refused to take any jobs that didn't work in L.A. just because I did not want to be away. But luckily I had um, and still have a team that supported that. So it seemed to work out okay. (laughs) Well, that's interesting because at some point in your career, there's a shift from doing film to doing TV. And it's... it's, it's That was the reason for that shift. It wasn't like, oh, this happens to be um, the perfect role for me. It was more sitting down with my team and saying, look, I can't take any jobs out of L.A. I got to stay here. You know, my um, ex-husband and I, who were great now, we we were going through a divorce, and it was like, I just, I have to be here. So um, let's look at TV. I had only been doing film for a good 10, 15 years at that time. Hmm. So um, they reached out to um, Joel Cernow from 24 and told him, you know, Regina is interested in doing TV. What do you think? And he was like, oh my gosh, I love that. So they created a role for me in 24. So that's how that began and just uh, it continued from there. Was it just the, the family situation or was the TV provide narratives that you found more challenging or, or attractive? Oh, oh, well, initially it was just the family thing. It had nothing to do with the um, narratives, um, TV versus film. But in that, I recognized that TV just was exploding because of cable. Mm. You know, cable is really what kicked things through the door. Cable, um, and believe it or not, even though they don't really exist too much anymore, DVDs. A show like 24, that show, its first season almost was canceled. But when it was released on DVD and went crazy on DVD, that's what kind of like the show had this resurgence and then money went behind it and then it became this huge show. Cable allowed richer storytelling to happen because you didn't have that censorship that Broadcast Network um, puts on you. So, Regina, you starred in HBO's show Leftovers, which is about a freak occurrence where millions of people vanish into thin air. There's one scene in particular that stood out from that show where your character and actor Carrie Coon's character are talking about their missing children. Did they depart or did they die? What? Your children. You said you lost them. Did they depart or did they die? They departed. What were the last words they said to you? To the best of your recollection. This scene you described as being one of the best performances ever. Well, first let me uh, clear that up because out of context, that sounds like I'm saying that it was the best scene ever. But that that was in context It's specific to me. And my body of work. Not true, I, true. Yeah. <laughs> it was the best acting in the history of thespianism. I mean, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> I'm like, wow, people gonna hear that and be like, oh, no, she didn't. But um, for me, you know, you you have these 
moments and I and I'm sure you guys in your artistry have like those moments where just the energy that goes between you and the crowd or you and the person that you're performing with that is you know indescribable it's just like you can feel it if anyone's in the room they can feel it and that's what it was like for Carrie and I it felt like we were doing a play it didn't feel like cameras were rolling it felt like that like you know if you were doing a Broadway and you go like remember that show we did on Sunday on Sunday <laughs> August such and such that's what it was like so it was um she and I felt that it was a gift day. Hmm. Were, did you get that sense that the scene would be like in rehearsals or was it the actual performance, something kind of all clicked together? It was the actual performance. I think, you know, when, when I um, signed on to do The Leftovers, the two things that I wanted was to have a scene with Carrie Coon and a scene with Ann Dowd. And didn't get the scene with Andal, but boy, did I get a scene with Carrie. So I think Carrie and I, once we when we got that script and saw it was an eight-page scene and it was just the two of us, I think both of us just in our own individual moments were like, oh gosh, we got a scene. <laughs> and then when we got into the makeup trailer, we just like looked at each other and was like, what? Uh, Eight pages? Okay. <laughs> so it was just the excitement, you know, that kept building up. Those great moments are like a tennis match. And Will Smith uses this analogy um, sometimes when it comes to performances. He he actually used it um, about a scene that he and I had on um, Enemy of the State. So that's the reason why I feel like I can handcuff it. Um that great volley, like, you know, Sharapova and Williams, you know, just each person wants to end up victorious, but you don't want to be in a match with someone that's not as skilled, if that makes any sense. Sure, it's, it's, sure It doesn't, sure. you're not excited, as excited about it. Mm -hmm. So in the director chair, you've been hopping on shows the catch scandal and being married. <laughs> She's my main thing. Now you are a bad ass actress. I'm curious, you as a director, you mentioned the bond and the connection that you had with the tennis analogy that you made with actresses, you know, while on camera. Do you urge people on to have that same type of connection as a director? Are you pushing people to their limit in the same way directors have done to you or because you're an actress first hmm. are you kind of like more compassionate and sensitive to the actors that, that you're directing yes to all of the above um i feel like as an actress i understand just the vulnerability that it takes to be an actor so there's a, a sensitivity that i have when it comes to um, direction or, or certain scenes that may come up that I know, that's gonna take a little bit more because it's it's a little more to um, get to that emotional place. For example, I was just <clears throat> directing um, an episode of Shameless and I uh, one of the actresses on there, she's um, new um, this upcoming season and she had never done a sex scene before. And she was telling me just how happy she was that it was me. And um, 
she said she wouldn't have had the opportunity to tell me that because I actually called her, you know, about a week or so before we started shooting to just find out how, how, how she felt about it, what I saw about it, what she, did, did she have any input? Did she have anything that she just did not want to even entertain? And just to let her know that it's my job to make her feel as comfortable as possible and to protect her. So she, in turn, she said, I'm just so happy that um, you were the person to direct me in, you know, my first sex scene. And I don't know that, uh, I think maybe directors who have been working for a long time, much longer than I've been working as a director, would be sensitive to that. But I think because I'm an actor, I have more sensitivity towards things like that because I know what I would want. Hmm. What was your first experience as a director? Um, my first experience as a director, um, I d- did a, a video <laughs> for Jaheen. And um, we were on the Monique show. R&B singer. R&B singer, Jaheen. And he asked me, would I be in his video, his new video? And I was like, (laughs) I don't do videos, boo. (laughs) 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 And so he was like, oh, okay, okay, all right, ma. (laughs) So then I went to my dressing room and I thought about it. I was like, you know what, this might be an opportunity to finally, you know, show that I am serious about directing. I'd only mentioned it to like close friends and maybe one of my agents, but I'd never really vocalized it on a big level. So I went back to him, I knocked on his dressing room door and I said, "Um, same day. And I said, I will be in the video if I can direct it. And he was like, oh, um, have you ever directed a video? And I was like, no, but, you know, I can do it. And he was like, "Um, all right. So he gave me the number to, I want to say Atlantic was who he's with. I reached out to them and they were like, you just need to submit a treatment. You know, you've written a treatment before. And I was like... Yeah. <laughs> no, with goes on Google. Yeah. How to write a treatment. <laughs> Where's that template in my Microsoft yeah, Word document? Yeah. Okay, I gotta find a treatment. Stop. <laughs> so, which is what I did. I called my good friend Tim Story. He just kind of talked me through it a little bit. So I just bought the song on iTunes and just listened and listened and listened and came up with a story. And that was my first directing experience. Coming up, it's time for the impression session. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dancehall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you're looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com. It's time for the... This is this is our favorite part of the show, Richie. It's called The Impression Session. Here's how it works. Stretch and I each pick a song, and we're going to play it for you. You allow it to take you wherever it takes you. You can digest it. You can talk over it. You can listen to the entire song. 
you can say, I don't like that song at all. Can you please stop? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Whatever it brings out of you, just that's that's where we'll go. Cool? I am so cool and ready to play. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. I think she knows this, Stretch. (laughs) I know she knows it. (laughs) Soft and wet? Are you serious? Of course. All I know, all I know, oh my God, I miss you so much, Prince. But all I know is that this album right here, I knew I wasn't supposed to be listening to it. And I really didn't understand why. (laughs) But I knew that it made me feel sexy as a little kid. Oh, my God, he was so pretty to me. Did you have a crate of records in your your room as a child? I had only a few, and this was not one of them. My mother would not allow me to buy a Prince record. But... I did a little bit of uh, reconnaissance. I, I know that you're a, a huge <laughs> Prince fan. Do you have any Prince stories, having you know spent so much time in L.A. where, where Prince had a home base? Yeah, I have a couple. I've, I met Prince a few times. Okay, the first story I remember is me, Cat Williams, and Anthony Anderson. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow, what a trio. <laughs> yeah, just, just start with that, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a crew right there, boy. <laughs> and it was my, my best friend, Yvette, and we were at the Mondrian up on, up on the roof, and Prince and Babyface were over in the corner talking. And, you know, we were all fans of Prince, so... You know, we, we're, uh, you know, digging that we're sharing the air with Prince. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're still talking and laughing and talking shit and being, you know, Cat, Anthony, Regina, and Yvette. You know, <laughs> just some loud-ass people, you know. <laughs> and so Babyface calls Anthony over. And uh, but he doesn't call him all the way over to Prince. Just kind of like walks away from Prince and calls Anthony adjacent. over. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Prince adjacent. Prince adjacent. Yeah, and asks, <laughs> tells Anthony to uh, tell us to keep it down. Oh. <laughs> now, as I what? said, I'm with Anthony and Cat Williams, so that's all she wrote. Yeah. He said that, and that moment we kicked our volume up to volume twenty five, <laughs> and just everything was like, ah, hey, you know, dropping, you know, the end word, f bombs, everything. We went, we really felt like we needed to offend every Jehovah Witness within a twenty mile oh, radius no. if it was all possible. That's the volume shade. Yes, the volume oh, shade. And Prince was so tickled. It made him laugh so hard. Like, <laughs> and, and at the end, of, we were like, man, that was baby face. That wasn't nothing but Kenneth. Yeah. Kenneth wanted uh, us to uh, be Amazing. quiet. 
so uh, oh God, that was um, yeah. my first encounter with uh, Prince. And he came over to the table and said hi and laughed and said, y'all crazy, funny, you know. So that was cool. Prince wasn't tripping. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll save number two and number three for the next time we interview you if we yes. get that chance. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to yes. cue up. Uh, uh, Regina, I'm going to play you a, a vinyl record. Hold on one second, okay? okay. All right. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man. Regina King, that was. Do, do you know that song? Um, I do know that song, but you know what? I, I got. I, there's. I, there's a lot of connection with that song for me. Okay, first of all, it sounds like an older song, but it isn't, right? No, this is no, recent. This is, Michael Kiwanuka. Bullseye. Yes, 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 yes. Black man in a white world. White is world this, is, this, is a song title. Right. So. I have a connection with this artist because the show that I just finished doing Seven Seconds, um, I had to, his song, which song was it? What John was it? If there's this new John, this new Michael Kiwanaka John, um, uh, that I had to um, sing badly in the show. It's called One More Night and it's on the same album. Okay. When you first played this, I was like, why does it make me feel like I'm in New York? Like back when I was living there in 93 and going to SOBs. Oh, wow. Like that's, 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 <laughs> what, that's what it brought up for me. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. back in the 90s, only New York parties were like this. Just you'd be at like a Brooklyn house party. And somebody just played that obscure joint that you'd be like, oh, what's that? Mm. Oh. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the feeling that it, it took me back to 93 New York. So I the reason why I played it for you, yeah. Why wife, did you play that? My my wife and I were, and I mean, uh, amongst the myriad of records that I could have played for you, right? My wife and I were in L.A. back uh, when this song first came out, and we were driving, listening to KCRW eighty nine point nine FM, which is our favorite station in the country. Yeah, KCRW is the bomb. Right? They play yeah. such good programming, music. music like learns. I've I've learned about so many artists I didn't know about just from listening to KCRW. Exactly. So, and this song comes on, and I I almost want to stop the car. I was like, "What is this song? It's one of those thing. It just grabs you, and we had to wait." And so they announced it, you know, they play like three more songs like, yo, what's that song? <laughs> right. Because it has that timeless thing. No matter if, if you would have heard that song 20 years ago or 20 years from now, it was, that song is still going to do the same thing. For sure. And then, I mean, just, you know, in terms of his lyrics and what he's talking about, you know, being a black man in, in a white world and and I'm not I'm not angry. It, it's it is so intimate and sensitive and vulnerable and powerful at and the same time. powerful at the same time so i just wanted to play that for you and see where 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 it took you well it took me to a whole bunch of different places now i'm gonna have, i only downloaded that one song for the show now i gotta go back and get the album <laughs> 
Or you can play it next to soft and wet. Yeah. <laughs> Regina, thank you so much. Yes, Fuerte yes, abrazo. That's all. I don't get another song. No, you one know? each. One each. Next time. Next Three time. for the set. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yo. Regina, thank you. Or best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you, See guys. See you soon, okay? Thank you, guys. Peace. That's our show. This podcast was produced by Sammy Yenigan, edited by Steve Nelson and Nigeri Eaton, and executive produced by Abby O'Neill. Special thanks to our VP of Programming, Anya Grunman. If you like the show, you should check out our interviews with Mahershala Ali and Dave Chappelle. Listen on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.